1: Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. On the morning of the 14th of October 1066, one of the most famous battles in English and British history commenced. A few miles north of the town of Hastings, Duke William of Normandy pitted his forces against King Harold of England. The battle that took place on that bloody ridge would be known as Hastings. It was one of those... Rare Things which was a truly decisive battle. It ushered in a period of conquest which saw the Normans replace the English indigenous aristocracy and in church and state, and see revolutionary changes in not just England, but right across the Isles, our complicated archipelago. In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be telling you about what happened that day in October ten sixty six. I'm do so with the help of some of our best contributors over the years. You'll be hearing from Professor Virginia Davis. She's a historian who's appeared on the podcast talking about 1066 and Duke William in the past. You'd also be hearing from Mark Morris, one of our favourite contributors, author of his recent gigantic history of the Anglo-Saxons, the period of English history between the Romans leaving and the Normans arriving. So Hastings comes right at the end of that book. Hastings is a very special story for me. It's one of the first documentaries I ever made the BBC. In fact, I think it was the second documentary I ever made in my early 20s. The BBC was going to Philip Hastings with my dad and explaining the course of the battle and what it all means. Genuinely, it was there that I had the idea that rather than make history programs to be watched on people's sofas at home on a Friday night and never heard of again, why didn't we take advantage of this new thing called the internet, delivering video to people wherever they were, whenever they wanted it, possibly even on the site of the battlefield of Hastings itself. And since then, I've been back to the Hastings loads. I've worked with English Heritage, who run the site to make videos for the site, Bluetooth to people's phones and devices. I filmed the biggest reenactment ever, which was in 2016. We had thousands of people on the field, the most number of people on the field, probably since the battle 940 years previously to the day. I've made subsequent documentaries there for the BBC. And finally, I made documentary there two years ago for History Hit TV. In a way, the ultimate ambition that I had 20 years before, standing at a battlefield as a kid without a clue. Well, thousands of you have watched that on History Hit. It's actually one of our most watched documentaries ever, 1066, on History Hit TV. You can head over there now, check it out, historyhit.tv. It's like Netflix for history. We've got documentaries from the Stone Age right up to today, the nuclear age, digital age. And Hastings is one of the most watched. So please go and check it out. Go to TV. And you get 30 days free if you sign up today. And we've also got a brilliant new series on the north of England, which really starts in this period and features the gigantic campaign of conquest and pacification by William the Conqueror, by the Normans, following the Battle of Hastings, reminding us the Battle of Hastings was not the end of the deal. It's all happening over there on historyhit.tv. But in the meantime, here's little old me, with a bit of help from my friends, talking us through 1066 and the Battle of Hastings. Enjoy. ten sixty six was a year in which history seemed to move at a gallop. There was no glacial change, no subtle shifts. This was a year that saw three men crowned King of England. It saw two mighty battles and other skirmishes as well. It saw at least three pretenders to the English throne slug it out on English soil, and it was a year that's come to represent a gigantic change, a huge moment of discontinuity in English and British history. It's rightly remembered as one of the most infamous or famous years in British history, 1066. Before we move on to the kind of day-by-day events of that year, let me step back a bit and give you a bit of the context in, and you'll hear wonderful podcasts on this feed with people like Mark Morris, Dan Jones, who can give you a sense of the medieval world. But for what it's worth, this is what I think about the background 1066. It was an era, I think I say this in most of my explains, which is rather worrying, but it was an era in which violence was the norm, in which war was common, particularly war around succession. I'll come to that in a sec. The British Isles, the North Atlantic Archipelago, call it what you will, was a patchwork of competing groups in that period. There were kingdoms and statelets and almost tribal areas right across the isles from Donegal to Kent. England itself was a relatively big unit, taking up most of the southern part of Britain. It had been united really for only a couple of generations since the conquests of Athelstan or his little brother Edmund. Do you know what? Who was the first English king? Seems like an obvious question. It's not a hill I'm prepared to die on, okay? Was it Athelstan? Was it Edmund? Was it even Edgar the Peaceful? I don't know. Okay, but it was one of them. And it was only a couple of generations before 1066. Then, north of that, you've got Alba, Scotland. It's in the 11th century absorbing the British kingdom, or you might more technically, accurately, maybe the Welsh kingdom of Strathclyde. That's the whole story there. A piece of the western part of Britain not yet conquered by English speaking Anglo Saxons or Germanic settlers from the continent. You've got Orkney, Shetland, the Hebrides, islands like Mull, Arran, Skye, the Mull of Kintyre, where my mum's family are from. They were Viking, effectively. They were ruled by the Northmen. And Ireland and Wales, I mean, where do we even start? They were a tapestry, a mosaic of competing kingdoms there. And all that meant that violence in the pursuit of wealth, of power, was the norm. It was celebrated. It was seen as the natural order of things. This feels disturbingly similar to my introductions for the First and Second World War explainers, and I think we might be hitting on something here, folks. We've got a problem with violence in our species. Anyway, succession in particular was a terrible point of danger. I was really struck reading Mark Morris's book on early English history. On the very, very rare occasions on which a stable succession was carried out, on which a dynastic line could be set up in this period, not just in England, but in Normandy, as we'll hear too across the channel, power was focused in and exercised by an individual, the body of a king. There were no capital cities in this period. There wasn't really a state like we get in Whitehall Day or in Washington DC, because the center of the kingdom was where the king laid his head that night. Continuity of government was dependent on the heartbeat of a king. And the minute that heartbeat stopped, there was absolutely no telling what would happen. Internally, with division, Or competition among magnates for warlords to succeed him, but also externally, invasion. It feels to me this period particularly unstable, if you like, because unlike in some cultures and periods where there is that importance of the body of the monarch, this period doesn't seem to necessarily have the unswerving loyalty of subjects to that family's bloodline. So in other periods, other dynasties, for example, I mean the Plantagenet family, don't get me wrong, they had their ups and downs, but at times the old king would die, and the young king would step into those shoes. In the 11th century, it doesn't feel to me like those families commanded the loyalty. There was a legitimacy in that kind of hereditary transition that you get in other periods. So although the son would have the best claim on his father's throne, he would almost certainly have to see off competitors. There would almost certainly be violence, competition around that moment of succession. And definitely every generation had to established themselves. It's almost like a blood claim, a hereditary claim in this period, was necessary, but not entirely sufficient to taking over from the previous generation. I mean, check this out. It was a violent business in the early Middle Ages. King Edmund of England, killed. His son Edwig, a total wrong and the country was effectively partitioned between him and his brother Edgar. Edgar ruled very successfully, but Edgar's son Edward was killed by factions within the Anglo-Saxon state. Edward was killed in nine seven eight. Let's be honest, that's where the rot set in. Because guess who came to the throne? Ethelred. Ethelred the unready. His half-brother had been murdered. Probably not his direct doing. A great schism therefore existed within the English state. The Vikings returned. This wasn't terrific timing, lads, because there was a great onslaught of the Northmen, onslaught of the Vikings at the end of the tenth century into the eleventh. Ethelred was not up to it, chased off the throne. England was conquered briefly. Swain fought bid, etc. Ethelred's son Edmund Ironside fought back. He was wounded in battle, may have died. Those wounds may have been killed on the toilet. We don't know. Edmund's sons were exiled. They are lucky to escape being murdered. Edmund Ironside's younger brother was murdered. You get the vibe. This is not a time when the automatic transition from father to son or from parent to child is as assured as it is in other periods. So nearly every succession was contested, and few more famously than the one in 1066. Because in 1066, there wasn't even a son to take the throne, and it was open season. It began in the depths of winter. King Edward the Confessor, the old king, he'd reigned for 24 years. He'd come to the throne as a result of a compromise hammered out between the Danish conquerors of England and the indigenous elite. He was of the line of Alfred. He was of the line of Wessex's royal family. So he'd re-established a kind of equilibrium, but that disguised fissures within England. And one of those fishers was represented in the person of one of his worst enemies and also his father-in-law, Godwin, Earl of Wessex, an Anglo-Saxon who had switched sides and become a key figure in the Danish administration of England under the rules of Canute and his sons. He had sought to maintain his power after Edward the Confessor had come to the throne and forced Edward to marry his daughter. Now, Edward had not produced any children with that daughter, arguably They'd never had sex. He'd abstained as a final act of defiance to his father in law. He'd perhaps abstained from having sex with his wife. And so, no children. So, England had a succession problem. Edward the Confessor breathed his last on the 5th of January, 1066. And the next 12 months, folks, the next 12 months makes Game of Thrones like a Game of Patter Cake. Let me tell you who's going to rule England? There is a blood relative, he's a child. And when there's a child on the throne, the nation is in danger a 13-year-old called Edgar the Etheling. He's the last of the line of Alfred. He's of the royal line of Wessex. He is a, oh God, I don't know what relative he is to Edward the Confessor. I mean, he's a cousin, basically. He has got the blood of Alfred in his veins, but he's young. And England was a rich country that needed a warrior to defend it. So went the thinking of Harold, the local strongman, Edward's brother-in-law, the son of Godwin, Harold Godwinson. As I mentioned, his father Godwin had switched times a few times in the old 11th century. In fact, he'd switched more times than Talleyrand, Napoleon's famous foreign minister. Anyway, so Harold was born from a Danish wife. So there you go, Harold Godwinson, English champion, Danish mother. So when Earl Godwin had died in 1053, the Godwins had had the Earldom of Essex, which Harold inherited. But by the mid-1060s, they have taken over. They've got a bevy of earldoms. All three Godwin brothers. There are some other Godwin brothers who've been exiled or in prison or just absolute troublemakers, dead. They have an earldom each, these three. They have a huge gang of supporters and friends they've put in position They're at the top of a huge pyramid of patronage. So the Archbishop of Canterbury is a supporter. The Archbishop of York is a Godwinson man. The newly widowed queen, as you'll remember, Edward the Confessor's queen, is Harold's sister. So when Harold's claimed that Edward the Confessor had awoken from his coma in order to anoint him as his successor, there's not many people in the kingdom who are going to disagree with that. So Harold is the homegrown choice for the kingdom, for the crown of England. There were other claimants. There was one particular claimant who I think, deep down, Edward the Confessor probably did prefer. I think he probably had promised him the throne. I say seemed because, disclaimer alert, folks, we've got very very fragmentary evidence for this. So, if I'm telling a good yarn here, remember that we cannot be certain about most of this. So, always bear that in mind as I'm talking. But it does seem perfectly possible that Edward promised the throne to someone else. That's because in 1051, Edward had had a falling out with his fathers in law and brothers in law. He'd sort of found his backbone briefly, and he managed to expel the Goldwyn family. And he'd put his wife into a nunnery. And in that time, critically, he'd invited Duke William of Normandy to come to England. And the evidence for that is pretty solid. It's mentioned in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and no one actually denies this happens. Norman sources subsequently suggest that in that visit in 1051, Edward, who grew up in Normandy, he was an he grew up in Normandy, his mother was Norman, he was a big fan of Normandy, it does seem that Edward may have promised the throne to William of Normandy. Let's hear from Professor Virginia Davis, British historian, explaining what the Normans were later to claim.
2: Post-1066, Norman writings claim that William had been promised the throne by Edward the Confessor. These pro-Norman chroniclers argued that William's invasion was a legitimate one and that Harold Godwinson had usurped the throne and therefore William was forced to invade.
1: Edward was fond of William because he spent his formative years in Normandy. His mum had been William the Conqueror's grandpa's sister, so his mum was William the Conqueror's great-aunt, so he was a cousin of William. And who are these Normans? Well, the Normans are from the root word Norsemen. They were basically Vikings. They'd settled in the area of Neustria, never know how to pronounce that, in France, now Normandy. And it was part of Frankia, it was settled by these Scandinavians from the late 9th, early 10th centuries. The first one was called Rollo. He calls his son William, and they then slowly become Francified. They adopt Christianity but they don't seem to lose that certain uh, warlike nature the Vikings are infamous for. They build castles, they embrace kind of European mainland architecture, castles, monastic building. They start fighting on horseback. They do adapt quite well to Frankish customs. They've got the best series of names in the history of the world, so let me just run through those. You've got William Longsword, whose son was Richard the Fearless, whose son was Richard the Good, who was father of Robert the Magnificent, who was father of William, soon to be the Conqueror. So, not a family you want to mess with. And that's exactly what Harold Godwinson chose to do. He had himself crowned within days of Edward the Confessor dying, possibly on the same day that Edward the Confessor was buried in Westminster Abbey, his new Westminster Abbey, Harold had himself crowned King of England. When news reached Normandy, William, Duke of Normandy, goes bonkers. The Normans subsequently claimed that Harold had visited Normandy. It's very unclear why. He'd visited Normandy and he'd sworn an oath to uphold William's claim to the throne on holy relics, on bits of bone associated with saints. This is a big deal. So he's an oath breaker, which in the 11th century is really bad. The Normans claim that Harold's an oath breaker. William of Normandy sends... A message to the Pope. The Pope agrees this can be a holy crusade against nosebreaker, which has all kinds of advantages. It means that it's backed by the Catholic Church. It meant that if they died, they'd get the fast track into heaven. It meant that it was divinely ordained. Always good to have God on your side. William then sent out words across Western Europe, particularly neighbouring parts of northern France, that he was going to invade. He asked for mercenaries, asked for volunteers. This would be an expedition on which there would be rich pickings. The wealth of England was famous. And William made it clear there'd be rewards for those who joined him under the papal banner to defeat the oath-breaking Harold and take back what was justly his. In England, Harold was well aware that he would have to fight William. And he gathered an army, a great army, to spend the summer in the south of England, in and around the Solent, possibly on the Isle of Wight, nearby, at the closest point in England to Normandy, to wait for William's arrival. Things were given a particularly dramatic feel that year by a neatly timed arrival of Halley's Comet, blazed in the skies above, giving those of a superstitious bent rather than nervous feeling. Would it mean the death of kings? Well, yes, it would. So whilst William is assembling volunteers from as far away as Sicily for his invasion force, Harold is calling out the third. He's calling out the, the militia, if you like, of England. He's got a corps in his army of so-called housecarls. These are full-time professional troops, some of the most highly trained, effective warriors in Europe at the time. But he's got a huge pool of part-time soldiers as well. Each earldom was divided into shires, and each shire had to produce a levy of men known as the fyrd. A small group of farms, maybe one hamlet, would have to produce one fighting man with the right equipment, the right supplies, to spend two months a year at war in the service of his king. So Harold's gathered, probably very near where I'm Recording this now on the south coast of England, looking out over the Solent. Perhaps, dare I dream, even on this exact spot, Harold could have spent the summer looking out over the empty sea. And the problem was, by the end of the summer, the harvest had to be collected. Food, supplies had run out. And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that the army had to disband. Food had run out, and no one could keep them there. Here's the very brilliant Mark Morris telling us what happened next. We're told by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, very accurate
3: information from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, that on the 8th of September, Harold stands down his army, and because he can't keep them there any longer, they'd run out of material. They'd run out of foodstuffs. So Harold is forced to disband, and sure enough, about four or five days later, as far as we can determine the Norman fleet does set sail. William sets sail around about the 12th or 13th of September from the place he'd mustered his fleet, which is the mouth of the River Deves in uh, Normandy. But what happens then is William sets out in terrible conditions. He sets out in less than ideal conditions and is blown. His whole fleet, so carefully prepared for months and months and months, his whole fleet is blown not to England, but eastwards along the coast of northern France to a neighbouring province, Ponthieu, to a town called Saint-Valéry. So William is clearly desperate to get going. He sees the fact that Harold has disbanded as a great opportunity, but the weather is still against him. And um, he ends up at Saint-Valéry and he spends another fortnight there, we're told, looking at the weathercock of Saint-Valéry Church, praying every day for the wind to change and for the rain to stop, and even going to the extent of Exhuming the body of Saint-Valéry himself and parading it round the Norman camp to obtain prayers from the whole of the Norman army because they need God on their side. However you regard it, these aren't cynical moves. This is a thousand years ago and the person who decides battles at the end of the day is God. So, you need to have God on your side. And they must think all this time, after weeks and weeks of rain and contrary winds, God is against us. This isn't going to work. And then what happens on 27th or 28th of September is finally the expected wind blows. The wind changes direction.
1: So, William is struggling to cross the Channel. And I always thought as a kid, this was ridiculous. I mean, how hard can it be to get across the Channel? Let me tell you something this summer, the weather was appalling here in England. If you'd had a fleet, of ships on the north coast of France who tried to get across to England. You wouldn't been able to do it. You wouldn't been able to do it for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. And interestingly, guess what happened in mid-September? Quite nice weather. Little window to nip across do a bit of invading, but we'll come to that. So a day or two after Harold's disbanded his army, he thinks it might be over for the year, he gets back to London and there is a thunderbolt. A thunderbolt. Harold discovers that England has been invaded, but not in the south, not by William of Normandy, but in the north. And in charge, at the head of this army, landing in the northeast of his kingdom, is one of the greatest warriors of the Middle Ages, a gigantic Viking called Harald Hardrada. And by his side, perhaps even more strangely, is Harald's brother, Tostig Godwinson. Here's Mark Morris to tell us more.
3: Tostig Godwinson, Harald Godwinson's troublesome younger brother. Throughout their career, really, throughout the 1050s and early 1060s, Harold and Tostig had collaborated very well. They'd invaded Wales together successfully in the 1060s, but Tostig had been made in uh, 1055, he had been made Earl of Northumbria, so Earl of everything, not the modern county of Northumbria, but a whole huge swathe of land, everything north of the River Humber up as far as the Scottish border. He's made Earl of that area and contrives very quickly to alienate Northumbrian society. So there's a big rebellion against him in 1064, and Harold and Tostig fall out because Harold refuses to back Tostig against the Northumbrian rebels. And Tostig is sent into exile. So from that point, Harold and Tostig are enemies. And It's not entirely clear what happens with Tostig because we only know the story from much later legends, either 12th century chronicles or even 13th century Norse sagas. But it's clear Tostig goes walkabout around the courts of northern France, possibly, but certainly Scandinavia, looking for military support. Certainly to topple Harold, I don't think Tostig is aiming at the crown himself. I think he's more likely aiming at toppling his brother. So it's a revengers strategy. also restoring his own power. So, you know, a new candidate, Harold Hardrada, is the one he ends up persuading to have a punt. Someone he can invade with
1: and be restored to his earldom. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about the Battle of Hastings. More after this.
2: Imagine a millennium that laid the foundations for the modern world as we know it today, when kingdoms were forged, languages shaped, cultures created... I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, my co-host Matt Lewis and I will tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval by History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit – Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. So Harold has been betrayed in the most brutal way imaginable by his big brother. It's all a bit Godfather here, folks. But before we see how Harold responds to this, let's talk about Harold Hardrada. Let's talk about his enemy, because he is a figure that I've been obsessed with for years. Harold Hardrada, which roughly translates as "hard ruler, severe, resolute." I think resolute might be a bit of a euphemism there, but you get the sense of it. He's a gigantic super Viking, a vague distant relative to the king of Norway. He was an adventurer from his earliest days. He was chased into exile. He headed east on the arteries of the Viking world of Eurasia that Kat Jarman spoken so beautifully about in this podcast. Please go and listen to that one. He turns up with the Kievan Rus, the Rus that gives the name eventually to Russians. The Rus, which may mean sort of rower. These Vikings, these Scandinavians are pushing down into the great rivers of Russia. And he meets Yaroslav the Wise. He was wise, old Yaroslav, indeed, because he made Harald Hardrada immediately commander of his forces. Took one look at the kid and went, right, you can lead my army. And then he fights everyone, folks, on behalf of Yaroslav the Wise. The Poles, the steppe nomads, the Byzantines, the Estonians. I mean, there is no one who Harald Hardrada doesn't fight. He heads south along those rivers. He actually signs up with the Byzantines in their Varangian guard. Now, the Vranging Guard sounds like something out of Game of Thrones, but it's much cooler than that because it actually existed. It was a sort of bodyguard, a kind of Praetorian guard, I suppose you might say around the emperor, an elite body of troops who were drawn from the north and northwest of Europe. So lots of Anglo-Saxons, Franks, Northmen. And it was seen that therefore they'd be outside the overlapping political, national, regional loyalties or competition within the Byzantine Empire, so they'd be able to quell dissent, put down rebellions without shedding a tear. And that's exactly what they did. Predictably enough, they also played a role in court intrigue, the palace politics, to the point at which it seems like they would install candidates on the throne of Byzantium itself. In fact, Harold Hadrada may indeed have had a hand in the succession of the Byzantine Empire. But he ended up fighting Arabs. We think he journeyed as far as Iraq and Syria. He went to Italy, Bulgaria. He became known apparently as a Bulgar burner in Bulgaria. He may have taken part in one particular palace coup where he blinded an emperor and put another candidate on the throne, all of which means he became fabulously wealthy, amazingly and somewhat predictably. Once he arrived back at Yaroslav the Wise's court, he then attacked the Byzantines straight away, apparently, because of course, by that stage, he knew everything about them. Anyway, he returned north through Kiev. He married a princess, and with his vast wealth, he headed home to claim the throne of Norway. You see, deep down, all he wanted all that time was to be back in his native Norway and be acclaimed king. Unsurprisingly, he did so. He arrived back in Norway and became king. I mean, you don't want to get that message that Hardrada's back from the east. Uh, He defeated the Danes several times in battle, never managed to unify Denmark and Norway, but defeated the Danes quite often, helped forge modern Norway, explored the Arctic. I mean, this guy is absolutely extraordinary. One historian has a great quote about him, which I thought was just one of the most remarkably euphemistic things I've ever read in my life. He said, his personal morality appears not to have matched the Christian ideal. Do you think so? Anyway, this is the guy who just crunched his keel into the gravel of Yorkshire. He lands in his ship, called Serpent, naturally. He unfurled his standard, known as the land waster. And, well, he got to business. He may have had around 300 longships, perhaps 12,000, 15,000 men, that kind of thing. Tostig has got some troops, Harold's brother, but what Tostig really brings is intelligence and local connections, much more than manpower. Tostig and Haldrada sail up the River Ouse towards the city of York. If I've said it on this podcast one time, I've said it a hundred times. Rivers, folks, rivers. That is until the steam engine, boats, rivers, sea, that's how people transported army, goods, trade, Themselves around Europe. The Northmen penetrated the Isles via the rivers. They were like arteries. And Norsemen were like, I don't know, uh, red blood cells or something. Anyway, they penetrated up the river towards York. And then they fought a very remarkable battle just outside York called the Battle of Fulford against the Northern Earls who had replaced Tostig, Edwin Morcar. It's a complicated battle. It's one that features in my TV show on History Hit TV that I made two years ago on 1066, been through the excellent Chas Jones, who's transformed the archaeology of the battlefield of Fulford. He's discovered there what seems to be one of the few sites in Europe where they found a series of artisanal smelting sites established after the battle. So the idea is that all these arms and armour, broken weapons lying around the battlefield, and immediately blacksmiths have come in, they're smelting, they're recycling, they're using that metal, creating, fixing, and making new. And what seems to have happened at that battle is that the Norwegians used the mobility given by the river, outflanked the English, and there was a slaughter. York surrendered to the Northmen hours after, and it was then arranged that hostages would be brought to the Norwegian army at a place called Stamford Bridge, which is ten miles east of York, as a sign of loyalty and submission. Sir Haroldrada returned to his ships, returned to his camp, and made his plans to meet these hostages at Stamford Bridge a few days later. Harold of England made one of the boldest moves in English military history while this fighting was going on at York. As soon as he heard the news of Hardrada's landing, he gathered his professional troops around him, sent messengers to summon northern counties to gather their fur south of York, and then made the journey on horseback, we think, 185 miles in just four days. It was a lightning march. This was characteristic of Harold, we think. He was a warrior. He'd established himself, particularly in war against the Welsh. He'd subdued several Welsh leaders. He knew his way around the battlefield. And he surmised that the quickest way to deal with this new Viking invasion would be to march as fast as he could, as quickly as he could, and snuff it out. In the words of Nathan Bedford Forrest, the legendary Confederate cavalry commander in the American Civil War, his idea was clearly to get there first with the most get Up into Harold Hardrada's face before Harold Hardrada was prepared with a big enough force to inflict a decisive defeat upon him. So, it's extraordinary four days' force march. He gets from London to York. He marches through the city of York, hears that there's going to be a meeting at Stamford Bridge, and continues marching towards Stamford Bridge. Harold Hardrada was overconfident. He and his troops advanced up from their camp towards Stamford Bridge. Many of them left their armor behind. It was a sweltering hot day. We only took Perhaps a third of his army with him. They left behind shields, the bulky equipment that would be a pain when you're marching. And he left the rest of his force behind by his ships in Rickle, which is sort of halfway up the ewes between York and where it meets the mighty Trent River, a bit further south. The Viking sagas tell us that when Harold Hadrada reached Stamford Bridge, he saw advancing from the west a force clad in armour off which the sun sparkled like the glint of sunshine on broken ice. He realised that he'd been caught. This was the English army under his rival King Harold, and he was at a great disadvantage. He was outnumbered, he was ill-equipped, and he was taken completely by surprise. Sanford Bridge is a bridge over the Derwent River, and the Viking army was split on both sides. The English charged in and massacred the troops on one side. The great story goes that one berserk Viking, one enormous Viking warrior, held the bridge in himself, held off the English army single-handedly, a great axe-wielding warrior, killing something like 40 Englishmen before an Anglo-Saxon got on a barrel, went under the bridge and stabbed up into his unprotected groin through the slats of the bridge. It's a great story and it might just be true. In the second phase of the battle, as the English rushed across the river and threw themselves at the Viking army, Harold Hardrada was himself killed, possibly taking an arrow to the throat, and Tostig, Harold's brother, was killed as well. The victory was so decisive that Hardrada's 16-year-old son Olaf, who'd remained with the ships, returned with just 24 of the 300 ships with which they'd arrived in Britain just a week or two earlier. It was a stunning achievement. Particularly given the recent history of the Viking invasion and occupation of England, This was a very different result, a decisive defeat. The last major battle fought on English soil against the Northmen. In many ways, the end of the Viking era in England. At this point, Harold King of England had won a victory to rank him alongside the greatest of English kings.
3: The battle being won, the dragon having been slain, he disbands his army for a second time. So all the call-up troops are sent home. Well done, mission accomplished. And then About a week later, probably around the first few days of October, I think, again, it's reasonable to assume Harold is still in Yorkshire because he needs to pacify Yorkshire. Lots of people in Yorkshire had been very pleased to see the arrival of a Scandinavian king because that part of the world has strong cultural ties, political and cultural ties to Scandinavia. So Harold wants to spend time in Yorkshire, I would think. Pacifying Yorkshire, having a serious conversation with the people of York about their loyalty, burying his dead brother, Tostig, those sort of things. And then just as he's kind of um, settling down again and thinking that might be it for the year, a messenger arrives post haste from the south and says, You're not going to like this, but a whole bunch of Normans has just landed in Sussex.
1: You can imagine Harold's dismay at hearing that. The invasion had finally come in the south, just as he dealt so successfully with an invasion in the north. Interestingly and understandably, he tries to pull the same move. He marches to London, and without pausing for long, he marches south. Some sources say that his family, his brothers, other people, tried to get him to stay in London, wait till a large enough army could be assembled to recall the third from the west country, from the Midlands, and not rush south to precipitate a battle against William. He could send someone else to fight a holding action, but he obviously believed he couldn't do that. If you're a king in the 11th century, there's a pretty clear lesson of the previous few generations, and that is a king must wield personal command of his force in the face of an invader. Charismatic, heroic battlefield leadership is an essential attribute of a monarch. If Harold looked back at Ethelred the Unready, the mistakes that he made, Look back at Edward's confessor, who I'm sure he didn't have a huge amount of respect for, and then further back towards Athelstan and Alfred, the message seemed to be pretty clear. A king had to move fast, to crush, to neutralize, to drive back invaders. And don't forget, Harold was, well, many thought he was a usurper. He did not have the blood of Serdik, the blood of Alfred and Athelstan in his veins. If your whole shtick, if your reason for becoming king is that you're a warrior who's ready to rule from day one, who's shovel ready, and you should be king instead of the 12, 13-year-old boy, Edgar the Etheling, then you've got to live up to that. If you're the man who's helped conquer Wales, if you're the man who's just seen off Harold Hardrada, you've got to maintain that vibe. You can't send someone else to fight the Normans. And at this point, in September 1066, Harold is one of the great warriors of early medieval history. He's defeated the Welsh. He secured the English kingdom. He's just smashed the land waster himself, the mighty Harold Hardrada. Harold of England is backing himself. William's coming up from his camp at Hastings, which is
3: about six or seven miles that way, and surprising Harold, who assembles his army on the ridge, as I say, where you can see Battle Abbey is now. Harold seems to have a favourite strategy, which is kind of, ta-da! He surprised the Vikings' Hardrada in the north and won that battle by surprise. So he's hoping to do the same thing here with William. But William's reconnaissance is very good His spies report that Harold is getting near, and William, on the morning of the 14th of October, marches out to engage Harold. So neither of them perhaps would have picked this precise site. It's not ideal for either of them. William, because he's rushing up the hill. Harold, because we're told it was a narrow place, so he can't deploy his whole army.
2: We don't really know how big any of the armies were. William of Poitiers gave a figure of about 60,000 Normans and implied that Harold had many more. Historians are rightly sceptical about the numbers cited by contemporary chroniclers, and most modern historians have concluded that the numbers on both sides were fairly balanced, with about seven to 8,000 in each army. What the Normans had, which the English did not, were the mounted knights, the cavalry. Prisoners were not taken, in line with Anglo-Scandinavian practice. Leaders and participants were slaughtered rather than captured and ransomed.
1: William had been very clever since he landed at Pevensey. He had made a nuisance of himself. He'd taunted Harold by burning, ravaging, laying waste to southern England, what is now East Sussex. Bear in mind, Harold had been Earl of Wessex before he became King of England. This was Harold's manor. We know he had land in this area, and William was deliberately provoking him, causing misery, reminding the unfortunate English of what life was like under a weak king who was unable or unwilling to defend them. He was gnawing away at Harold's legitimacy. So Harold marches south, and William hears about this and marches north to meet him. He marches north out of Hastings, and we hear from I think it's William Poitiers, who said the battle starts at the third hour, so sunrise, perhaps six thirty. So we're talking nine, nine thirty. The battle will commence with a great blast on the trumpets, and a Norman attack up the road that runs from Hastings North eventually to London, which was being blocked by Harold's army on a mighty ridge, a very commanding ridge. Now, if you've been to battle there, it's very hard to get a decent sense of that battlefield. It's been so messed about with. It's been so changed after over a thousand years. For a start, we were in a battle abbey. Now, on top of that ridge, required a lot of landscaping. The top of the ridge was sort of chopped off and levelled. But there are places where if you stand, you look down, and it is a serious hill. It was a very powerful position that Harold's occupying. And so, when William had marched his six or seven miles north of Hastings, he would have seen and his army would have seen a pretty terrifying sight. And that is a bristling wall of shields, axes and spears above, daggers and swords pointing through chinks in the shield wall, an immovable object at the top of this hill, blocking the road to London, blocking their escape from what was then a kind of peninsula, the Hastings Peninsula. And the battle that followed, William had no choice but to try and drive Harold from that hill, from that ridge line. As for Harold, he was determined that he would stay all day and beat back those attacks, cause sufficient casualties among William's men that would weaken him and make him more vulnerable to Harold's army, which was growing all the time. We have to imagine that troops, reinforcements are arriving at the behest of their king all the time. The battle that followed lasted much a day, and it was for much of that time a real stalemate. Here's Mark Morris again.
3: Well, we're told the battle begins with a volley of arrows and projectiles being launched by the Normans, and then it's the infantry and then the cavalry riding up the hill to try and break through that shield wall. It is essentially a stalemate. That's the most you can take away from the sources, that they're trying to break through that line and the line is holding. And it produces a very unusual battle. That was, again, something said by contemporaries, a very unusual battle, because one side just stood still and kind of took it on the chin, while the other side charged up the hill and tried to smash through. So it's, it's two utterly different ways of approaching battle, which makes H- Hastings such a, an exciting and unusual battle to investigate.
1: I often think about the course of that battle and how unbelievably intimidating it must have been for the Normans and their Breton and their Flemish allies attacking up that hill. The infantrymen toiling up the hill, exhausted, panting. And as they reached the English line, hail of projectiles, hammers, rocks, spears, things thrown down upon them. And then the cavalry, horses blowing, pushing, trying to push hard up the slope to find chinks in that shield wall and drive through it, break the English apart so they could be hunted down piecemeal. Harold's shield wall was the way in which the English and Vikings tended to fight. They called it a war hedge and they fought, said one Norman chronicler, with great bravery, with great refusal to submit. He said they count as the highest honour to die in arms, that their native soil may not pass under another yoke. One of the great descriptions of a shield wall, of a war hedge, is the Battle of Malden, this heroic poem composed about a battle that took place in Essex at the end of the 10th century during Ethelred's reign. Actually, we just featured it in a recent podcast, so go and check out your feed for Malden. It's a battle that we know a little bit about because of this remarkable poem that survives. And we hear in this poem how the English leader encouraged his warriors there, riding and ruling, directing his soldiers, how they must stand and keep that place, and gave them instruction as to how they should hold their shields correctly, fast with their hands, that they should fear nothing. When he had fortified his men graciously, then he alighted amid the ranks where it most pleased him, in the place where he knew his most loyal hearthguard to be. Those are his full-time professional household warriors, the housecarls. There was shouting heaved up, ravens circling, eagles eager for carrion, an uproar was on the earth. Then they let fly from their hands, spears file-hardened. The spears grimly ground down, bows were busy, shields were peppered with points. I think that gives us a sense of the fighting that lasted much of the day at the Battle of Hastings. The Norman tide would surge up that ridge It would reach the high tide line. There would be a ferocious, snarling, pushing melee at the shield wall. The exhaustion would kick in The Normans would retreat back down the hill to regroup. Norman archers would spray the shield wall with arrows and soon, like the poem says, the shields would have been peppered with arrows embedded into the wood. I like the way the English leader took his place on foot in the front rank. We think that's what Harold probably would have done with his brothers, Gerth and Leof Wynne there as well, providing that leadership. William, too, at the bottom of the hill, was riding a horse using the new stirrups that were coming from the east, allowing riders to really put their full body weight behind a great blow with sword or lance. And his half-brother, Bishop Odo, he didn't like spilling blood to demand the church, so apparently he used a mace. And other close family members, bound by familial ties, were essential to William's command and control as well in the day. Now, at this point, or in a subsequent attack. After one of these ferocious moments of contact, when the two lines had come together in a pushing, shoving, anarchic melee, the Norman line, some Norman chronicler say it was the Bretons, their allies from Brittany, they blame them. They retreated down the hill in a kind of chaotic manner. And that seems to have precipitated a kind of almost general crisis in the Norman army. The rumor went round that Duke William was dead. And William, at this point, has to tear his helmet off and gallop the length of the line and say, I'm alive, I'm alive, and with God's help... I'll be victorious. He managed to rally the army. And this is the point at which some historians think that by rallying the army, some English troops had chased the retreating French, Bretons, Normans, whoever, down the hill. And by rallying the army, William was able to sort of round on those English troops. And now they're out in the open, away from their war hedge, away from their shield wall. They were vulnerable. because They're in ones and twos, small groups, and William's heavy cavalry could scythe into them and strike down at these infantrymen. And they were exposed. They were vulnerable to that counterattack. The Bayer Tapestry says that a small group of English troops were sort of isolated, trying to form a little shield wall, and then they were butchered. Now, that possibly includes one or both of Harold's brothers, Gurth and Leofwin. You can imagine King Harold, if he was still alive and able to, receive that news at the top of the hill and carrying that torment through the rest of the day. Bring
3: us on to the crucial point of the battle, because the crucial point that all the sources agree on, so the detailed sources are the Carmen, William of Poitiers and the Bayeux Tapestry, they all agree on the fact that at some point the Normans started to run away. They disagree as to whether it was feigned or whether it was real. The Normans start to run away and the English follow them down the hill, and then the Normans wheel round and turn it to their advantage. Now, it's impossible to unpick which source is right there. I think the most credible one is, perhaps the Normans tried to feign it. Uh, The Carmen says, a flight that was started off as a ruse, as a trick, then became real one, as it went wrong. The Normans pull that off, and they manage to sort of encircle the groups of Anglo-Saxons who have come down from their ideal position on the top of the hill and pick them off. And it's that breaking of the shield Wall that does for Harold and the Anglo-Saxons.
1: It does seem that this was the way in which William was able to grind down the English army. Perhaps once, perhaps more times, and whether it was deliberate or not, the Normans retreated down the hill and each time perhaps the English would follow, they'd be rounded upon and cut down. So that indiscipline, that over-enthusiasm, whatever it was, that trickery meant that more and more of Harold's troops were being killed out in the open rather than staying on the ridge where they were relatively safe. And it seems that by nightfall, Harold's army, the gaps we're starting to show in that shield wall. At this point, William launches one last major attack up the hill.
3: Once the shield wall has holes in it, then really, that was the English's primary advantage. That was what was keeping them alive, the fact that their shields were all locked together. As soon as they've got holes in it, then the Norman cavalry have the advantage of being able to ride quickly among them, pick them off in small groups.
1: So. We don't know, of course. One annoying chronicler says that King Harold was killed at the beginning of the battle, but that's terrible for a dramatic retelling of the battle. So let's just ignore that particular source and go with two perhaps more reliable sources, the Bay Tapestry and the Battle Song of Hastings, both created within a couple of years of the battle at most. They do seem to suggest that Harold lasted until late in the day. One of them, the Bay Tapestry, appears to suggest that Harold may have been shot in the eye by an arrow. Even then, though, William needs Harold to
3: be dead. You know, this isn't a war that can be solved by negotiation. This is a succession dispute. He doesn't just need Harold defeated, he needs him eliminated. The turning point, the thing that decides the battle, all the sources agree, as you'd expect, is the death of King Harold, you know, the elimination of one of the, the two contenders for the throne. Well, the arrow in the eye we all remember from, you know, when we are little children, because it's famously depicted on the Bayer tapestry. So we see it on, you know, lunch boxes or key rings or tea towels, what have you. And that image of Harold sort of grasping the shaft of an arrow that's lodged in his eye socket is kind of very hard to get beyond. But the problem
1: with the tapestry,
3: as I always say, is that it's an artistic source.
1: So was Harold shot in the eye by an arrow? It's one of the most famous episodes in English history, and it may well never have happened. It's not mentioned anywhere else in any other sources. And it may be the bear Tapestry doesn't even show that, because in fact, if you look at the stitching, the holes in the back of the tapestry, it seems like a sort of spear or something, a stick has been reinterpreted as an arrow by 19th century restorers. So there may be no arrow there at all. There are no fletchings, those little feathers on the back of an arrow if you go back beyond the 19th century. Also, if it is an arrow, it could be kind of allegorical because there's bits in the Bible about a king who broke an oath being shot in the eye by an arrow, were being blinded. So it could be allegorical because Harold is an oathbreaker. So the whole thing is pretty obscure. It's a thousand years on. It's a bit like trying to work out how Nelson died from a cartoon made a few years after his death. So it's tricky. No other contemporary source to mention Arrow. To be honest, I find the most convincing theory is one mentioned in a source called The Song of the Battle of Hastings. And that is that William gathers his elite troops around him, looks for Harold's banner, the fighting man of Wessex, a jewel-encrusted banner featuring a fighting man. And charge straight forward. And that does make sense. You look at other medieval battles, decapitation of enemy leadership was a very sensible policy. It tended to achieve a quick result. Go back to the ancient world, look at Alexander the Great at the Battle of Gaugamela. He leads his Macedonian heavy horse right toward Darius's position in the center of the Persian line. Darius flees, and that's really the end of the battle. The Persian army collapses after that. So, in the same way, it is very possible that William, towards the end of the day, felt confident enough to try and ride an elite hit squad up the hill, find Harold, cut him down, and then topple his banner, at which point that would dishearten his troops. And that's perhaps what happened. A group of Norman knights, according to this one source, identify Harold, fight their way through his housecarls, and kill him savagely, chopping his body into pieces.
3: This is the spot where it almost certainly happened. On Van Ilkenstjorda, as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says. We're told by the sources that the killing continues into the darkness. Um, Mostly it's Englishmen falling. I mean, you've got to imagine this place is covered with dead bodies by this point. But really, in terms of the broader picture after that, this is the fall of Anglo-Saxon England.
1: Harold's banners, the Dragon of Wessex and the Fighting Man, were thrown to the ground, and in the dusky light It would have been the sign on the battlefield that the English army had dreaded. And word, I think, would have passed through the ranks like wildfire. We don't know, but whatever happened, the Normans were able to breach the shield wall. Harold was killed. His brothers were killed. Without that leadership, Harold's army started to melt away into the shadows, and the Normans were left in possession of the battlefield. Duke William had won a bloody victory at Hastings. Some ran. Small groups fought rearguard actions. It was certainly a bloody evening for the Normans. As night came on, Duke William would have rode across the battlefields. We know there were thousands of corpses. The job of stripping them of valuables, of armour, of clothing, would already have begun by his own troops and by local people. So by the following day, there would just been a mass of naked, mutilated bodies on the field. Somewhere among the dead was King Harold of England, and Anglo-Saxon England died with him. Some nobles attempted to put Edgar the Etheling on the throne, but he was never crowned, and William's march appeared unstoppable. He circled London and had himself crowned in Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day 1066, near the end of that extraordinary year. Hastings was decisive, but it wasn't the end in itself.
2: We think of the Battle of Hastings as being hugely decisive. One battle, and England is William's. That wasn't the reality. Although he was crowned in late 1066, he was not yet secure on the throne. And over the next five or six years, he faced a series of rebellions led by exiled English leaders, including members of Harold's family who had fled to Ireland after Hastings. So it was not in fact until after a major rebellion in the north of England, which he crushed very savagely, that William could really begin to feel properly secure. The English in rebelling against William had two problems. One is that although rebellions occurred all over the kingdom in these four or five years, they were not joined up. It really was the case that they were isolated incidents, allowing William to defeat them and then move on and defeat the next one as it broke out. The second problem was there was no single English leader around whom the rebels could coalesce.
1: Although pacification were gone for years, the Norman Conquest, which is symbolised by that year, 1066, is probably the greatest upheaval of the last thousand years. A gigantic change that Professor Virginia Davis can tell us a bit more about now.
2: The big change is the replacement of an English aristocracy with a French-speaking one. This created, I think, a divide in society between the peasantry, the majority of the rural population, and their lords. And we can even see this reflected in the English language, the ways in which it developed. So the words for the animals who were looked after by English peasants were English words, cow, sheep. While when those same animals appeared as food on the Lord's table, they were called by the French terms, beef, mutton. Because I think in hindsight, he changed the direction and the links that England had with Europe. For the previous century before 1066, many of England's links had been with Scandinavia and the sort of Viking areas of Europe. Now England was linked closely with France, and I think that just tilted and changed sort of geopolitical axis of England.
1: It's quite easy to sum up that change in a different way. When William the Conqueror commissioned the Doomsday Book, which is kind of basically an inventory of this kingdom that you just conquered. You want to know where all the cash was and agricultural wealth and everything else. In the Doomsday Book, it lists all the landowners and all the powerful magnates in the country. There are no English earls. None of the top rank of William's aristocracy were English. There was only one English bishop. And of the thousand magnates, the men who hold land directly from the king, only 13 were English. And the level down from them, the subtenants, the gentry, only 10% have English names. The Normans invaded, fought a bloody decisive battle at Hastings, and then subsequent campaigns, pacifications, castle building, terrorisation, and they succeeded in replacing the native elite of a kingdom with profound changes that endure right up until today. That's 1066 for you, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. You can always go and watch the 1066 documentary on History Hit TV. And I think next year we're going to do a 1067. We're going to do what happened next, how William followed up his victory at Hastings with his campaigns to cement his rule over the English. So watch this space. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time, bye-bye. I feel we have
3: the history on our shoulders. All the
1: tradition of ours, our school history, our songs... This part of the history of our country, all work on and finish. Thanks, folks. You've met in another episode. Congratulations. Well done, you. I hope you're not fast asleep. If you did fancy supporting everything we do here at History Hit, we'd love it if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give it a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Thank you very much indeed. That really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please let everyone do that. It can seem like a small thing, but actually it's kind of a big deal for us. So I really appreciate it. See you next time.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.